We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. How you doing? It's your boy, John of the Macri, coming at you with another episode of the Knicks Film School podcast. Uh, you know what? Again, we've been joking about it. Dog days of August. Not here. Nope. Uh, because we will stop at nothing to get you the most up to date news on something of which there is no news about. And that is the walking conundrum that we all live in right now as Nick fans. We got the one and only Jake Fisher from Bleacher Report. Uh, if you're someone that follows the NBA, even a little bit, uh, you have read his writing. You have seen his tweets over the last few years. Uh, he came on to give us the most up-to-date update on the Donovan Mitchell situation with the Utah Jazz. Uh, spoiler alert, not going to hear uh, anything new as far as what is going on at this exact moment. However, Jake gives some nice juicy tidbits uh, about some of uh, how these negotiations have gone, uh, the stance of the Utah Jazz, where some of the sticking points uh, in the trade might be, uh, where he thinks the Knicks are going to kind of have their line in the sand as far as how many first round picks they want to put in this deal. Um, and he also has some good stuff on uh, the veterans that are going to be potentially going back if and when a trade gets executed. He really added a lot of context to the Mitchell stuff in places uh, or in, in a way that has not been reported yet. So if you're looking for um, the most up-to-date information on the thing that has not happened, uh, stick around for that interview. Jake also talks a lot about his book. Uh, as I'm sure you know, Jake Fisher wrote a book. Uh, when did it come out, Andrew? About a year and a half ago now? It feels like a year and a half ago. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, yeah. Yeah, around then. Uh, I was looking it over uh, over the last few days as I was preparing for the interview, and I can promise you it is just as relevant right now as it was the day it came out. Uh, the, book of called is, the book is called, of course, Built to Lose, How the NBA's Tanking Era Changed the League Forever. Uh, I would strongly recommend anyone who likes reading about sports, reading about the NBA to go out, get a, get a copy. It's perfect for end of summer reading. Uh, it's easy. You'll breeze through it uh, and you will, of course, enjoy it. And you get a lot of um, tidbits 
which is what we all love as NBA fans. March last year, by the way. There you go. So I wasn't too far off. But no, not at all. Look at me knowing, knowing stuff. Okay. Uh, enough of me bloviating. Uh, let's get to the interview that you all want to hear. Me talking to Bleacher Reports, Jake Fisher. Joining me now on the Knicks Film School podcast. Very, very, very pleased and honored to have this person as a first-time guest. Um, his name has been on more breaking news and rumors reports over the last few years than just about anyone who covers the sport of basketball. We're going to talk to him about some of that. Um, he does all that for Bleacher Report. He also is the author of uh, one of the best NBA books to come out in some time, one of the best sports books to come out in some time, Built to Lose, How the NBA's Tanking Era Changed the League Forever uh, from Triumph Books. Pleased to be joined by Bleacher Report's Jake Fisher. How you doing, my man? I'm doing better now that you said I wrote one of the best sports books ever. That's very kind of you to say, man. Thank you. I mean, I'm biased because if there's someone who takes the time to write a nitty-gritty like 95% of sports fans might not care about this level of minutia, but the other 5% are going to eat it that up. Like you're writing for me. So again, I'm biased. I'll, I can admit that, but it was awesome, man. Thank you, man. It's, uh, it's got a lot in there that any fan who loves the slop will enjoy. Yeah. There's front office infighting and trade negotiations and little locker room tips and all that type of stuff from Philly to Boston to Sacramento, some New York, you know, 2015 draft stuff with Porzingis and Phil Jackson. And, you know, it, it really does kind of have a tentacle into every single team. So uh, if you're out there and you like the NBA and you like original reporting, that's my pitch. Um, I want to get to back to the book uh, a little bit later because I have some questions about not only that, but where, kind of tanking is today since you yeah. since you spent some time writing the book. Um, but he mentioned slop. There's been some slop this offseason. Oh, boy. <laughs> um, and we're still, it seems, in the midst of that slop, perhaps in the middle of it. Um, let's start with, with obviously what you're here to, I'm sure what most listeners are going to be most concerned about, which is the Knicks current situation. As far as Donovan Mitchell, you've done a lot of reporting on this. You've, you've done some interviews on it. Uh, is it fair to say at this point we're still at a standstill and that nothing new has emerged over the last few weeks? Yeah, I, I had not heard anything new. Um, the only new thing I've heard is that there's nothing new. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, so I, I think I, I do think that the situation is a bit tied to the Kevin Durant sweepstakes as well. So that, okay. that's important context. I feel like I might not have like illustrated that point enough they're not you know directly connected but toronto for example is one of the teams that's potentially looming out there that could be a player for both um miami i think is probably more of a player for donovan than for kevin durant but even then you know to to, to bring us back to the knicks like the knicks clearly have the best possible package in terms of draft pick capital that the Utah Jazz could command from anybody. They can trade up upwards of eight first round picks, right? You guys have talked about this yeah. time and again. Um, but that doesn't mean the Knicks want to aggressively outbid other teams if they're distracted by the Kevin Durant situation. If they don't have, you know, Miami only has two first round picks, I believe, uh, to put on the table. So I know 
I think it is definitely a bit of a staring contest. And, you know, someone I saw on Twitter, I forget who, so apologize for not giving credit today, joked that maybe there should be like an August 15th trade deadline, a second offseason trade deadline before like training camp to kind of, that would help things. Cause for now, same thing with KD. Any team that wants to go get Donovan, the Knicks included, that haven't necessarily met the Utah Jazz's asking price yet, there's nothing really happening aside from a meeting with Joe Sy in London, which, you know, I don't know how much that's really going to change things either there. There's got to be some type of tangible event to really have actual movement in these trade talks. So I think the impression that I know I'm under and that I think a lot of fans are under is the next the only tangible event that's coming up anytime soon is the opening of training camp. And it feels to me like that's going to be the next instance of does anybody blink? Um, Do you, I I mean, I understand Danny Ainge puts forth this kind of posture of like, Oh, I'll I'll keep Donovan Mitchell until the end of his contract. If I need to, Um, do you get the sense that there might be, some edginess on the part of the jazz if they're on the eve of camp and you know or or does that depend on how close the sides are in in negotiations at that point i don't think so because i think the situations between donovan and kevin are different in this regard i really do think utah and maybe not on the whole but there are big portions of utah leadership from my understanding that have never wanted to trade Donovan, that don't want to trade Donovan, that have recognized, all right, this Rudy Gobert deal happened. We got put forth an offer from Minnesota that was beyond our wildest dreams of picks and other pieces. You know, Jared Vanderbilt is nothing to sniff at. Patrick Beverly definitely has retrade value. I think Malik Beasley does as well, but to a lesser degree. They got Walker Kessler, a first-round pick in this year's draft. Um, And, you know, there's more. So... I think that put the question of do we trade Donovan at the forefront more so than it would have been if the Rudy Gobert deal didn't happen because Toronto was on the hook, Chicago was on the sure. hook, Atlanta had you know some type of conversation with Utah too. No team came close, from my understanding, to what Minnesota was willing to put on the table to get him. So that changes things drastically. But I still think that you know they were looking at some type of sign and trade thing with Colin Sexton to try to add a piece around Donovan Mitchell at a, at a certain point in this off season. So I really do think Utah would be content bringing him back, especially, you know, clearly it's not that big of a deal now having the two all-stars or having an all-star when hosting the mid season, you know, event in February, but wouldn't hurt. Right. So, you know, that they, they redo these jerseys, in you know, I, I've been told Donovan had a stamp of approval on those. Really? So, oh, I don't want yeah. him anymore. Now I now I can't go sign any trade. So like there's definitely interest in keeping him versus with Brooklyn. Like, I think the second a team puts together a package that meets the Nets asking price, I think they're oh, interesting to that button and accept it. Yeah. So you mentioned the Gobert trade and that from your understanding, and I think from, from everything I've I've certainly read and, and seen nobody else came close. I think it's pretty clear the Knicks don't want to be in a situation where a trade goes down and then there's a bunch of reporting afterwards like, wow, nobody was really close to this. Um, and then, you know, on the flip side of it, you have Ainge who knows very well what the Knicks have and and what he is capable of getting. And, and the fact that like, look, 
we talk about it all the time on the show. I don't need to belabor the point here. Like the Knicks do need a guy who could do what Donovan Mitchell does on the basketball court. I, where, where I've always come back to, and I, I want your opinion on this, is that ultimately for Ainge, it's going to come down to the picks and specifically the how many real golden ticket possibility lottery tickets he can get from a team. And that's why I, when the news broke a month ago, I was like, I think the Knicks have an advantage here because I think Danny Ainge is going to look at the Knicks and say, I think they have a better chance of stinking in five, six, seven years than the Heat or the Raptors. Or, you know, and I'm a Knicks fan, but I could sit here and I could say that because I think, you know, I'm just trying to peer into what Danny Ainge is thinking. Do you think that there is legitimacy to that? And and do you think if you had to guess right now, what or if there isn't maybe something, what do you think these negotiations will ultimately come down to? Will it be those future like 28, 29, 20, maybe 27, like one of those picks? Or do you think it might come down to a Quentin Grimes or like an Obi Toppin or something like that? I think it's more the latter than the previous. I think it's going to be, and you know, a lot of my job is, or at least my approach to it is taking recent events and gleaning info from that. And then using that to color the questions I ask moving forward. Right. And if you look at the, at the Gobert trade from everything I heard and what's been reported pretty left and right, you know, the, the wolves had to put in more draft capital because they weren't including um, McDaniels. Right. So that type of haggling is what I heard was going on. But right when the Knicks, jazz talks heated up and they were, you know, in conversation and mm. some people reported it was on the brink of being done. I, I never heard it was, it was on an, I'm not, I'm not refuting that. No, I, had heard, I was going to ask heard, you about that. What's the deal with where there was that flurry of like four or five days where it seemed like every day there was two or three different people who were like, yeah. Oh, trades. Like, do you have any idea where all that came from? I mean, it was that they were having, I was told serious conversations. They were having serious talks, pitching multiple frameworks, different scenarios. And that kind of goes back to what I was going to say in that, you know, if it's Derek Rose's salary versus Evan Fournier's, for example, like that could be Utah could look at that one way in terms of value compared to New York, or if it's, you know, Obi Toppin and, you know, McBride and Grimes versus Obi and Emmanuel quickly. And, you know, there's going to be a mixing and matching every organization pretty typically has, they will like, they will have a ranking of what they think another team's maybe it's not like a straight spreadsheet ranked one through 30, but they will have either an analytical uh, computation. Is that the word Sure, of what they actually are valuing? Like, Obi Toppin at or valuing a 2024 second round pick at, let's say, and they will rank them and they will say, well, we, we, if, if we're not getting this then we want that. So that's going to be, and I think that it, from my understanding was where certain things fell apart, right. Where, and, and, and most conversations do fall apart and, and they can come back, you know, the Boston Brooklyn conversations with Kevin Durant, I keep going back to that, but it just like, to me, they're very, obvious context for each situation like Boston has shown a willingness to include Jalen Brown. Brooklyn said, great. That's definitely the linchpin we're going to need, but you're going to need a hell of a lot more. Those talks, you know, fall apart and they're still out there. They can still be, you know, revitalized and and get serious, but you know, they fell short with, with the early New York stuff. There was all these different things. There was, 
Um, you know, what I was told was there was different negotiations and all the young pieces. And I think RJ Barrett is even in his own category. You know, how much is he worth? One GM I talked to from a different team said, well, if I'm Utah, I don't care if I don't want to pay RJ Barrett. I don't care if I don't think he's someone that I want to rebuild around. He's clearly the best young blue chip asset player that the Knicks have. I just want him back in, in my return from a sheer value. Figure play. it out later. Anyway, yeah. then, you know, I talked to multiple people directly involved in the situation who said Utah doesn't want RJ Barrett. They don't want to deal with paying him. But like, because he is that value play, maybe him not being in the deal, Utah is trying to spin as, oh, well, that's why you need to give us more picks. Yeah. So it is kind of this convoluted, he said, she said type of negotiation bartering that across the board from veteran salary that's going to match and the Derek Rose, Evan Fournier thing. I don't, I don't know for sure if it is that cut and dry. It has sounded like that to me in the past. Being that, that what is that guy. cut and dry? Maybe, uh, the that Rose or Fournier would be the main salary yeah. going back, or something else. The jazz, the Jazz have no interest in long term money, so Julius Randle's deal seems to be a non-starter. But to that long term money point, Derek Rose has only one guaranteed yep. year left. His, his next year on his deal is a team option. Evan Fournier does have a second year, so that that that, that might seem on the surface like not that big of a deal, but, but it might be to Utah. It might be to Utah, okay. especially with retrade value and Derek Rose would in theory, I mean, he was a better player last year, right? And he's on a more flexible contract for even the next team after Utah that in theory, the Jazz will look to move him on to or Evan Fournier and vice versa. So all those little, you know, pivot points, inflection points of these negotiations really will matter. Uh, one more on, on this, and then I want to move on to the book. Uh, you, you just described, I think, it, again, my own two cents, having absolutely no sources on this, why this has the potential to drag out for a very long time because there are just so many variables about and deal constructions you could have. And then when you have Brock Aller on the other side, who was you know, the master of pick protections and this and that, I mean, it, it adds another layer of complexity. Um, if you had to guess, again, I'm asking you to guess, not, but be very clear, I, any aggregators <laughs> listening, this is just be careful. Um, do you think it gets done? Uh, I'm not even going to ask you to put a time on it. Like, do you think this trade gets done at some point between the, the Knicks and the Jazz? I would guess yes. Okay. Um, a couple of weeks ago, people in the league were talking as if it was a matter of when, not if it was going to get done. That was before this has dragged out for, I mean, it's been over a month, basically. I think I left yeah. Vegas on July 12th, and that was the day that um, I wrote my story about the trade talks, I, I had gotten wind of the Colin Sexton stuff and was like, okay, I've got some Knicks, whatever. Like I was ready to write the story. And then I think the athletic broke that they had the talks. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's been a month, right? I mean, at yeah. that point in time, it was definitely a matter of when, not if. I still would think that looking at the marketplace, like we talked about at the top, the Knicks have the assets to go and get Donovan more than anybody else who would actually be in the running. OKC is not you know, pushing their chips on the table to go get Donovan Mitchell, right? I don't think yeah. New Orleans or Memphis really are either. Um, so it kind of just comes down to the Knicks and some type of acquiescing and a deal to get done for both sides. The one thing that I would say is maybe in the, in the, in the, the column of pushing this towards not happening, 
the Knicks are definitely not looking at their overall roster construction as Donovan Mitchell or bust. They looked at Jalen Brunson as being one guy that any number of number one, number two type guys would want to come play with. I mean, this it was six months ago when everyone was, you know, just pounding the table for Zion going to New York, right? <laughs> Obviously yeah. he's re-signed with the with the Pelicans and that situation seems simpatico for now. But like I think a big reason why New York is not just rushing to put six first round picks on the table for Donovan is they're gonna want to do more. So they wanna they want to maintain sure. more flexibility to continue to add to this team. And I do think there's a price that they're willing to go to, but not over that. I don't know 100% what it is. Certainly sounds less than five first round picks. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I think it's in that four to five range, depending on what the collection of the other contract their, players are. Their comfort level as far as picks putting in. That That's how it sounds to me. Yes. Uh, I think you just gave an answer that'll be music to a lot of Nick fans ears because uh, I just, I think that's where the fan base is right now. They don't, they don't want to give up the hall and they don't feel like it should be Donovan Mitchell or bust. Um, you know, even, even though there might need, might be another obvious next star, you know, to fit the timeline that is, that is asking out, but this is the NBA and crazy shit happens. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Good transition to uh, your book. So uh, I just, as a matter of context, when did the most of the reporting for you occur? Because I, I feel like that'll help set yeah. the stage for what I want to ask about. I, I did most of the reporting during the 2018, 19 and 19, 20 season. And the focus obviously was on years that, that preceded that. But it, it, so the, the reporting on the book is like three, four years old. In that the time, because I feel like when when you wrote this and surely before the book came out, it felt like the league was moving away from tanking. Mm-hmm. And now we're sitting here and I'm looking at next year and I'm like, wow, this is going. I mean, you want to talk about race to the bottom? The teams are boy, are they gearing up? 
do, do you like what do you think about where the league is right now having done all this work talking to all these teams and 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 all these people you know Philly's the most famous example but you obviously reported on other teams as well about their approach do you think the league is like this is just inevitable teams are going to continue to go this route yeah you know the 2014 draft was considered to be the draft of all drafts, the, the first draft loaded with all-stars since 2003. 2003 obviously brought LeBron, Wade, and Bosch. And right around, you know, 2012, 2013, 14, they were all playing together in Miami, going to the finals every single year. So all these teams like Boston and Philly and Orlando and Sacramento and Cleveland and Milwaukee for a year and Minnesota, they all said, you know, we're not going to beat LeBron anyway. Let's get the next LeBron, Andrew Wiggins yeah. at the time, Jabari Parker, Joel Embiid. Uh, Aaron Gordon was like a prize in that draft. Marcus Smart, Julius Randle was a prize in that draft. Um, and this year, you know, Scoot Henderson and Victor Wembanyama and the Thompson twins are already considered like this top four with Wembanyama, I think, in his own category. So yeah. I do think part of the tanking trend is directly tied to when there's this expectation of just a generational type of uh, superstar being available. But to your point, like the league is kind of in a place right now where you're either tanking or you're doing everything you can to win. Yeah. And it really has eliminated much of the middle ground. Sure. There are teams in there, right? There are teams in the back end of the lottery. There are teams like new Orleans. That's a plucky young team. They make a fun run to the playing tournament and they try Jake, to- I cover one right here. In the next, <laughs> I mean, we, we could say that we could say the quiet part out loud. It's okay. The Knicks are a mediocre team right now, but the Knicks were trying to make the playoffs. They yes. go out and get Jalen Brunson trying to get back into the playoffs. Even teams, you know, like Sacramento made a trade for DeMontis Sabonis to try to get into the playoff picture. But if you're not, if you really don't think you're a playoff team, you're, you're tank. You are bottoming out. And you're trying to become what Cleveland is now, what Memphis is now. And I do think a lot of tanking and trying to rebuild and build something organically with young guys. I do think a lot of that is a counterpunch to the player empowerment era. Because if, if a team like New Orleans or Memphis or Cleveland or even Golden State back with Steph Curry, and as they've done with that, you can get these guys under team control. You can build around them and grow something with them. It prevents you from being you know a flight risk or, or you try to prevent prevent yourself sure. from flight yeah. risk and not leave yourself at the whim of someone requesting a trade and wanting to get, get the hell out if you if you've already paired them with two or three all-star caliber players that you got in the draft around them you know you try to make it work but the reason why I want to write the book is it's not so easy okay see drafted KD Russ and Harden and lost all of them you know Philly had all these picks and they got Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons turned into James Harden, but like they still haven't gotten out of the second round. Like it is, a, it is a challenge. And, and that alchemy of going from rebuild with a bunch of young dudes to a legitimate contender like Golden State is year after year, it's really, really damn hard. And there's a lot of stories in there to show why it is so challenging. And some of the stories you tell, uh, and you just mentioned them, are about Philly. And and to be clear to everybody, you you go through five different teams in the book: uh, Boston, Orlando, Sacramento, Lakers, and Philly. Um, and but I want to key in on the Sixers for a sec because you had 
I'm not going to give them all away because people should go buy the book. Um, but some great anecdotes. <laughs> Thanks, there's more. There's plenty in there to to save. I mean, the Carol, I, the Karolinko stuff was that was pretty. That was pretty interesting that he was basically yeah. like in the way you tell it, he was basically like begging to be caught. And eventually the league and you, I think, intimated that the union had to step in to get him eventually yeah, bought out from Philly. Yeah, there was a lot of situations where Hinky would swing a deal and there was some agreement already made. OK, well, we'll waive him immediately and he'll become a free agent and what have yeah. you. But every, but as the years went on, every time that happened, Brett Brown was begging to get one of these veteran guys like when they, traded, when they traded Evan Turner for Danny Granger, like Danny Granger was the superstar of the, of the Indiana Pacers gets hurt, loses his team to Paul George comes back, gets traded from this team. That was like the rival to Miami in the Eastern conference to Philadelphia, the worst team in the league that wasn't trying to win games. And Brett Brown was like begging for him to try to come be a veteran leader and Danny Granger was like, no, get, get the hell out of here. Andre Karolinko's situation was even more convoluted being that he had a pregnant wife yep. who was bedridden having a really, really difficult pregnancy. He wasn't going to uproot her from her hospital in New York to go play a couple meaningless games for some young pups down in Philadelphia. So yeah, that, that, that was a real, and it, la- it went on for months. I remember. Yeah. And, and that's just one of the hinky things in here. Uh, and then ultimately you have, you know, the part where the Okafor stuff happens. And then it, as you write it, Adam Silver was none too pleased about how uh, things were, were going on. And then you kind of tell the story about how Colangelo was, was brought in that eventually led to Hinky's ouster. I'm it's interesting because I think a lot of people, when they think about Hinky, we can finish up with this, his being fired is like, Oh, well the league stepped in and basically showed that you can't, you know, they're not going to put up with sustained organizational, you know, tanking. And meanwhile, I'm looking at what OKC has done for the last few years. And I'm like, this is art. This is as bad, if not worse than yeah. like with SGA, you know, sit out healthy games. The guy's an all-star caliber player. And yeah. then it, and then you read the book and it's clear. It's like, no, it wasn't about the tanking. It was about Hinky just not being someone that, you know, anybody liked and that pissed a lot of the wrong people off. Is that, do you think that's a fair assessment? Yes. And I also think a big difference is the fact that Philadelphia is a major market. You know, they're the third winningest franchise in league history. They're supposed to, this was right after the lockout when they instituted this revenue sharing system that, you know, this year, $10, $10 million went to every team that weren't a taxpayer team. The Sixers are supposed to be annually paying into that tax, benefiting all the other owners. Instead, they're the laughing stock of the league. When they're visiting on the road, the gate revenue isn't coming for rival owners, rival teams. They're complaining to Adam Silver about it. And on top of that, Hinky would only speak once or twice a year. And never really, you know, revealed too much and and held his cards close to the vest. Sam Presti does like a two and a half hour State of the Union address at the end of every season. And it's an OKC. No one cares what's happening in OKC. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry to say that to Thunder fans, but the league just... A lot of Thunder fans that listen to this podcast. The Thunder just aren't in a position to be a black eye on the NBA. They'd have to do someone involved with OKC would have to do something so egregious to really get the league's attention to like, I mean, they'd have to have some cheating scandal, some drug things, some, you know, Deshaun Watson level, like just abhorrent 
thing in order for the league to crack down on whatever OKC is doing. They can lose a couple games here and there, especially like the dirty secret is the Thunder being bad and bad and bad and collecting all-star caliber guys like Shea Gildas Alexander and Josh Giddy and Chet Holmgren and another top five guy to leapfrog them back to the playoff picture, just like they did from 07 to 09 when they got KD, Russ, and Harden. That's going to benefit the league too. So it, it everyone's not ex- necessarily playing within, within the same rule book. I, I think you just kind of answered what's going to be my last question, which is like, it doesn't seem like there is any impetus to change how teams go about their business, how the lottery is. It feels like everybody's kind of happen, happy with the flattened odds. I, I, I mean, if, and thus there's complaints about it that I haven't seen reported. Would you, is it fair to say like, you know, again, as someone who wrote the definitive book on the tanking on, on tanking and, and, and how teams went about it, that things are not going to change anytime soon. So, I mean, the, the playing tournament has gotten pretty much universal praise. Um, and that's encouraged a couple of teams to not tank and to fight for it. Right. Like New Orleans did like Sacramento at first did um, trading for Sabonis, like we talked about. And when the league makes a big change, like they did to the lottery reform, I believe I haven't talked about this in a long time. I believe there's been four iterations now of the lottery. Once they do that, they're not going to, they're not going to look to change it anytime soon. Cause then they would admit that their big change didn't work. Like that's good call. That's yeah. another thing. Like they're going to make sure they at least uh, act like it's solved tanking for at least <laughs> five to 10 years. That's definitely going to happen. Yeah. Um, I, I guess so. All right. Last, uh, last thing. Um, tell, not that anyone should need this information, but for anybody who doesn't know, can you let people know where to find you and uh, yeah. obviously where to find your book? You got it, man. The book's available anywhere books were sold, built to lose, how the NBA's tanking era changed the league forever. Um, my Twitter, Jake L. Fisher, F-I-S-C-H-E-R. That's where I post whatever I'm doing when I got, I don't tweet that much. So, um, <laughs> When when I have something, I, I I put something out. That's pretty much it. There are the the list of the list, and again, I have kids and a wife, so I th- this should carry some extra meaning. There is a, li- a very very short list of people that no matter what I'm doing, I could be in the middle of a a splash park, like I I think I was when the last time you tweeted something along these lines. But when a Jake Fisher tweet drops with an article with new news in it, it's like, honey, give me ten minutes, and then. Go digest, read, and then you know, put put out whatever I need to put out because that is the that is the place that you have elevated to uh, in the league. Every, I mean, universally respected, um, trusted, and that's why I really wanted to get you on. And uh, thank you for spending a few minutes. Really appreciate it. Thank you, man. Appreciate the kind words. That is the goal of what of what we do, right? So thank you so much. (laughs) It it means a lot to uh, to get that feedback. Enjoy the rest of the offseason, my friend. You got it. Take care, guys. Hey, you. Yeah, you. Got Bush? You definitely do if you haven't tried the best products from our sponsor today, Manscaped. Taking control of your bush is important. These products are so good, you're going to be showering in your new bush-free yard. It's a fact that you will have the best-kept nutsack on the cul-de-sac. Save big and be the most hygienic version of yourself by using discount code FILMSCHOOL 
for 20% off and free shipping at manscaped.com. Whether you're looking to go bald like an eagle or just need a safe trim, Manscaped is dedicated to helping you level up your full-body grooming game. The grooming package I highly recommend is the Performance Package 4.0. Inside the package is the Lawnmower 4.0. This electric trimmer is a bush's worst nightmare. This trimmer is designed to reduce grooming accidents and shave hair on loose skin thanks to a ceramic blade and advanced skin-safe technology. No need for night vision goggles. This trimmer has an LED light to allow you to mow the lawn in the dark. Second best tool in the performance package is the Weed Whacker. This fine-tuned nose and ear hair trimmer will make sure your nasty nose pubes are under control. Instantly add some pep in your step with the Crop Preserver Deodorant and the Crop Reviver Spray-On Toner. With the performance package, you get two free gifts, the Shed Travel Bag and the patented high-performance Reduced Chafing Manscaped Boxers. They have a bunch of other products on their website to help you maximize your confidence and grooming game. Get 20% off and free shipping with our code FILMSCHOOL at MAMSCHOOL. Manscaped.com. Again, that's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use your code FILMSCHOOL. It's time you level up from the Amazon to the Amadong with the ultimate bushwhacking tools from Manscaped. All right, there we go. Good stuff from Jake. I don't know if I leave that interview feeling more confident that Donovan Mitchell is going to be a Nick by trading camp, less confident. Andrew, are you, are you more, less? Where are uh, yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. Um, when he said I, the word "fell apart," the t- before the talks fell apart, that was that was that was a phrase. Yeah, I. There is a lot of posturing publicly, I think, going on on both sides, and that's not just the Knicks and Jazz, as far as both sides are concerned. I think what we as Knicks fans can learn from this week is that. There's a lot of what we'll say publicly going on in L.A., in Brooklyn, in anybody trying to trade for anybody still. And because, as Jake referenced, there is no deadline for them to like a secondary deadline, like an August 15th. But if you're either trading for somebody or you're locked in until which actually would create. A lot of attention for the NBA if they set like an August 15th deadline and then the summer's cool. over and then you <laughs> can't like that. like that other deadline or that reopening where you can trade guys that you just signed in December. Like, you know, that that uh, deadline that happens where we were like the Knicks can trade Randall after said date or whatever yeah. it was. Um, if you wanted to make that the reopening of you can now trade players that would be that actually creates some drama whether the league or union would ever approve it is another story uh the answer to your question is i will take just the smoke there's fire type of type of deal where i think donovan mitchell will eventually be a nick but i know the word eventually is not something people want to hear i will say my pushback to a not necessarily pushback but i think where you and i have differed is i i do appreciate that the knicks are willing to walk away Whereas I, I think I've been a little more ardent that no, they have to do this. No, let me. I, I have been wishy-washy on this mm-hmm. because I, on one side of my mouth, I'm saying the Knicks have to figure out a way to get this done. And coming out of the other side of my mouth, I'm like, but the Knicks can't overpay. And I don't know. I, I don't know that that is a that is a, I can take both of those stances. What what I loved most from what Jake said is. Leon Rose is not sitting around saying, woe is me if we don't get Donovan Mitchell. I actually love that. And while I may personally question 
where that next star is coming from. Um, and the fact that if you don't get Mitchell, it makes it less likely, not more likely that they're going to be able to get that next guy. Because again, the guy has to want to come here and believe he's, you know, next can be a contender and the whole thing. I, I'm happy. Leon Rose is, is, is taking that stance. Well, this is where it's a perfect plug for Jake's book, because you talked about the Philly stuff with Jake when you had a mine. I'll reference the L.A. stuff because there's a lot in there about the the other bus brother, the other bus bus sibling that was in charge of the Lakers and Mitch Kubchak and their whole plan during the final few years of Kobe was just a star will want to come play for the Lakers. That is our strategy. We will be bad, but we will keep our assets, but we will also make this kind of the Kobe Bryant invitational over the next couple of years. And a star will want to come here. It didn't work with Dwight Howard. It didn't work with Kevin Durant. It didn't work with uh, LaMarcus Aldridge. And then they got fired, but they felt vindicated by the fact that LeBron saw the last few years of Kobe and decided to go there. And the Knicks are a big market that has chosen a path that has worked for the Lakers and they're drafting smartly. And I think as long as they're ducks in a row and they don't, don't give up too many assets for Donovan Mitchell or like anybody else, they will be able to not only trade for Donovan Mitchell, but then have enough to then make the next move competently as well. I I think that's fair. Um, I think it's fair. And I think it's, it's okay to not be so caught up in the fact that there isn't an obvious star looking, you know, or that, that will have eyes to, to get out of the current situation other than Donovan Mitchell right now. Um, you know, which is, which is, I think you just vocalized Leon Rose's best negotiating position. Mm-hmm. Cause I think if he could sell that as a, as something that he believes, you know, then, then it puts him in a better spot. Um, I hope. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no. What were you well, just like, I think my biggest takeaway from Jake's book is how much easier it is to sell hope. Like not even, not even necessarily hope built on anything other than like promise, like potential and how much easier it is to sell that than a current team that is around the six or seven seed, potentially adding one more piece and there you go. We're ready to move move on like the Nets did to get Katie and Kyrie, like the Clippers did to get Kawhi and Paul George. It's much easier to sell your team on, or at least your fan base on the idea that we have a lot of young players on this team and we hope Emmanuel quickly will turn into something. We hope Obi Toppin and Jericho Sims and Quentin Grimes and Deuce McBride and all these other kids will become something. And like, this is now the second book I've read that's mentioned Sam Hinkie that as much as the process highlights probabilities and the, the advantages there are to be at the top of the draft, you still need to treat people like people. And that was like his biggest problem. You can't just, you can't just feel the team that nobody knows if they're part of the solution. And that's what I think the Knicks have done that they've, convinced all of us that all of these kids are part of the solution to the point where like you read the letter, I read the letter. The Knicks win 39 games, but 
Like Obi Toppin is playing 25 minutes a game. Emmanuel quickly is getting sixth man of the year votes. Or how about this? Starting some games down the stretch, or at least finishing games. And RJ takes a leap. And Quentin Grimes moving into the starting lineup. If these kids are contributors, this fan base is going to eat it up. And regardless of what the win total is, they're going to be able to sell us on the direction of the franchise going forward. Yeah, no, I, I don't I don't disagree with that. I mean, we've talked about how different you know, it was it's not the win total that made last year what last year was, although obviously dropping from 10 games above 500 to four games under, not four games under. How many games under? Eight, Eight. games under. Yeah. Um that was obviously a, a significant drop off, but it was the way it happened. And there was, was a, a lot of decision making um you know, along the way. But to your point, I do think that there's a world where the Knicks could go 39 to 43 and have fans feeling pretty good about the team, depending on the, on how they go about it. Um, What I am, what I'm always going to be interested in because I just know the history and the fact that you could count the amount of executives on one hand in the 75 year history of the New York Knicks who have lasted, who have kept their jobs for more than five years. Um, you know, how long is the rope? Uh, and I, I, we like the job Leon Rose is doing so far. I, I think so. I'm a fan of his. We're a fan of his. I think it's all positives. Um, but kicking the can down the road and maintain, I forget what term you just use, like, like maintaining status quo, whatever it is, but like continuing to just wait out when the star is going to come, that can get tougher. And it could certainly get more expensive with your with your young players, but like that's where it takes a creative front office executive like Brock Allen, and that's presumably why he has a job. Can I ask the question? Has any Nick president or general manager been allowed to like see out a long term plan? Like I know the history of people running the Knicks under Dolan, and this is not a defense of Dolan. I don't need that on my resume, but like I'm a Rangers fan, and he leaves those people alone. He's a really good hockey owner. And he's gotten the right people in charge of that team. And I don't fully subscribe to the theory that Dolan just hasn't found the right person to put in charge of the Knicks. But I partially subscribe to it. The only one that seems somewhat competent is Donnie Walsh. And I'm someone that pushes back on the competence because he came here and said, I will clear the cap space because summer 2010 is coming. You walked away with a botched meeting uh, with LeBron, Wade and Bosch when reports say that we were their first choice and then they met us and then they were like, nah. And you walked away with Amari Stoudemire, who you gave the only team to give a fourth year to. And then when the mellow trade came around, I'm not relitigating it, but I understand if at a certain point, it's like, we're not letting another person that you promised you were going to get walk out of the door to, especially if it was going to beat New Jersey. So like, Walsh may have been the most competent, but there was always this big promise, like what Steve Mills did. Like there are aspects of some of these plans that seem competent, but there was never a long-term goal. There was always like because the quick fix is coming. And is there a world where now, as we just mentioned, like you could sell the hope of some of these younger players that Dolan, because the Knicks can reasonably walk away from a negotiating table with Danny Ainge and be fine that Dolan will be fine too. You know, I think you're, I think the better argument is that since Dolan has been the owner, when things have gone bad, they've gone so horrifically. Yeah. And that with the, in the late in years, which I understand was a, a, 
that was like right when you were starting probably to watch the team, right? Um, How young do you think I am? You're a lot younger than me. I, know I remember Scott Layden getting hired, John. Okay. Yeah. So Jeremy doesn't. I know Jeremy that. doesn't. No. Chris doesn't know who the fuck Scott Layden is. No, he'd be uh, like, who's this Layden character he's talking about? So, but it was, there was no exciting young talent on the team. And it was just a bunch of contracts of like middling guys. And it was, that was, you want to talk about a road to nowhere. That was a road to nowhere. Mm-hmm. Isaiah, we don't have to relive the disaster that was Isaiah Thomas and the draft picks that went out and, and how poorly like the Curry thing worked out and all of that. And then Donnie Walsh left by all accounts on his own accord after he didn't like how some things went down towards the end of that, the season they traded with Mello. And then that led us to Phil and Steve Mills and uh, Phil. I, like you said, there was a lot of missteps there. Uh, and bad decisions and bad juju and all just across the board, not good and icky and all that. And then, like you said, Mills, you know, cleaned house and uh, didn't didn't come up with the goods. So the point is, I think that Leon Rose, again, he's been competent, like his regime has been competent. They've competently put one foot in front of the other for two and a half years now. And I think the Brunson signing tampering investigation be damned. I think that is another example of putting one positive foot in front of the other. I think drawing us something of a line in the sand with Donovan Mitchell is another example of putting competently one foot in front of the other. So all of the competently putting one foot in front of the other, I get all of that and I appreciate all of that. And I do think he deserves to continue and you know get a long runway unless you get to a point where it's like, well, it, this is clearly not working. And you know, it's, I don't want to say it's a slippery slope, but you know, how, how long does it take before you turn around and be like, huh? So the Knicks have been like, a, you know, occasionally exciting, mostly middling team for the last 10. Like that's what I think there's just, a, it's, it's tough to say when, when we bleed into, okay, it's time to shit or get off the pot, which is to bring it back to Jake's book. That's why tanking is so freaking popular mm-hmm. because you don't have to ask those questions. Because it's like, hey, it's very clear what we're doing. We're going to lose. We're going to lose a lot of games. We're going to lose a lot of games for a few years. And there you go. And as somebody who has been very vocal against tanking, <laughs> I'm not going... I'm just flatly never going to go back on the stance of like winning is better than losing. Like, it's the best I'm, debate in sports, Andrew. Right. I, I get that it's a debate, but I don't think it's a debate between like pro-tank and anti-tank. I think there are two different types of sports fans I'm not even sure either one is necessarily wrong. I just think they're different. And that's the debate. There are are those that like math and like numbers and like the buzzwords analytics, but it's really more about figuring out what's probably going to happen more times than not the probabilities of sports. And it's why baseball is so fascinating. And it's why that's that line of thinking is taking over the sport over the last 20 years, The, the game that's rooted in failure now has figured out other ways to determine what's probably going to happen. Then there's me and my kind that prefer history as what drives them to sports and the myth-making and the players that represent your franchise that you allegedly root for and how you, you kind of take them in and embrace them. I don't care if the Knicks tank to get to the three pick. I care who that three pick is like that. Speaking of the three pick, that's my biggest takeaway of now the two books that have had Sam Hinkie. I mentioned it earlier, both your own's book and now Jake's book have outlined how very little he cared about the, the 
people he was tanking to the top for. Jaleel Okafor's career was set up for failure that the incident happened his rookie season. And it was so bad by that point that Mike Krzyzewski literally had to call Adam Silver and say, step in. I don't like that a kid that I, I invested in has gone into this situation. And that's when Colangelo got involved. And as much as people might say that Colangelo ruined the entire hinky thing in the process and whatnot, like look, read what happens to the local for afterwards when they bring in Mike D'Antoni so that they're not just running some dog shit sets that aren't going to work. And they're actually playing some competitive basketball. They bring in Elton Brandt to be an ambassador and a mentor to Julia Local for so he learns how to be a rookie in the NBA and isn't just here's a ton of money you're gonna lose seventy games this year, like there's other ways to do it. Like I don't care that the Knicks got the three pick in 2019. I care that it was R.J. Barrett. The human element of sports is what I enjoy more, and that gets in the way, or or I guess more it, it conflicts with the thinking that I want R.J. Barrett to succeed. And there's an entire other form of thinking that the best way for RJ Barrett to succeed is to lose a lot. And I think that's the debate going on right now. I, I don't, I don't, dis- I agree. I, I understand and appreciate everything you're saying, which is why I asked Jake the kind of last question because, like, it, um, rewarding this on its face is not rewarding the thing that you are supposed to reward in sports, whether it be excellence on the court or excellence behind the scenes in the front office. That said, it's funny you bring up Okafor because I think what the hinky era in Philly, maybe not proved, but showed, you can't just tank your way to the top. Mm -hmm. There are subtle decisions that have to get made every day, like how you manage a Jilla local four and how you bring him along after you have drafted him into your organization. And, you know, the same goes for like Nerlens Noel and like other guys that they brought in. And like, there are little things along the way. So it does take a deft touch. Um, I don't think that makes it the incorrect decision if the only thing you care about is increasing your odds to the greatest degree of someday competing for a championship. Yeah, but like there's so much more nuance into winning a championship than just like playing probabilities and the value. You still have to manage people. I I keep harping on this. The the tanking to the top might actually have worked. The top of what, I think, is the question we should be asking. If the entire point of tanking is to get a pick toward the top of the draft where players historically have amounted to be more valuable than later in the draft, fine. The fifth pick will probably give you a better player than the 15th pick. The fifth pick could also be a a front office that doesn't know what they're looking for and they take Emmanuel Moutier. The 15th pick could be one that does, and it's Giannis. Like, I'm sorry that people think those are outliers, but that to me is how these victory machines get built. The better book about how to build a champion is the one that Ethan Strauss wrote about the Warriors. They built a culture that people wanted to be a part of and to compete for a championship when they got drafted to that team. And it's why just tanking is too simplistic for me to be such an absolute necessity in order to compete for a championship. That's just, that's how I'm always going to feel. And it's why when 
the Knicks win and they're called incompetent, I'm always going to get frustrated, especially when people look at the meaningless wins they had at the end of the season last year. When all these kids that are supposed to be part of the solution were responsible for them. So look, I I'll wrap up by just saying that admittedly the top of the draft is where you should be nailing the pick more than the later in the draft. But we're sitting here waiting for Donovan Mitchell. And if Phil Jackson takes a nap before his pre-draft workout, instead of during his pre-draft workout, Donovan Mitchell's already a Nick and we wouldn't have this problem because they would have nailed the ninth, the eighth pick in 2017. And that is more what I feel the focus should be and how well the process of evaluating and not the process of losing for the sake of eventually, maybe, well, not even maybe, probably getting a better player. That is how I feel. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I, I disagree with that. I think, you know, in a perfect world, you're, you're drafting a guy who's going to set your culture and be the on court. Leader, but again, those, those those players don't like RJ Barry. But you could also draft that guy at fifteen with Giannis. You could also draft that guy at thirteen with Kawhi. Like nail the pick is more my point. Nail the pick. Yes. Yeah. Um, this was good. Uh, thank you, Andrew, for chiming in. This is good. You're I, like welcome. I like talking about tanking. Um, we are about to record another episode about the NBA. We're Patreon uh, for, for Patreon. So uh, anybody listening that is not a patron of Knicks Film School and wants to hear us um, continue to go through my top, I don't know how long the list is going to be. It's going to be at least 30, probably 40. Maybe Andrew will convince me to do it up to 50. I don't know. Trade assets in the NBA. Uh, join, join the Knicks Film School Patreon uh, bonus episode every week. And uh, if you just take this podcast, if you like listening to Jake Fisher talk about the current state of the trade discussions with Donovan Mitchell, uh, please leave us a review. Give us a five-star rating. Uh, the whole thing, we really do appreciate that. Until next time, we will talk to you soon. Enjoy your weekend. Enjoy your weekend.